It's, it's Nick Brown, Global Commissioning Editor at AEDC, and I'm delighted to welcome Gabriella Watson and Suzanne Anderson to talk about a lovely recent global health piece which I commissioned on rheumatic fever and its sequelae. Gabriella is a, a paediatric um, trainee in, in London but spent some time in the Gambia last year at the MRC Centre. And Suzanne, as a long-standing tropical child health interest, has an honorary consultant post in London at Imperial, spent time in both Malawi and Gambia. Well, welcome, welcome both of you. Thank you, Nick. Um, to say, I, I, I loved your paper, but I, partly because it had such a such a personal touch, and I could tell how passionate you both were about this subject. Um, it's one of these things a lot of people learn about at medical school and then promptly forget because they're not exposed to it on a day-to-day basis. And um, I think it's probably fair to say that most graduating doctors have no idea how prevalent it is worldwide. So I wanted to really open people's eyes on, on the subject. So if we could start by talking a little bit about the epidemiology and health burden that group A streptococcal disease and rheumatic fever specifically places on children resource in in low and middle income countries that that would be a great place to start yeah so nick i think certainly i agree with you as a graduating medical student i had learnt about it uh sort of hypothetically in always asking in the past medical history have they ever been exposed to rheumatic fever but i certainly had never seen a case and i wouldn't really have had a clue what i was looking for uh, and then suddenly when you're in the Gambia, you realise that so many of the kids are presenting in really severe heart failure at a very young age due to rheumatic heart disease. Um, so that's for me what sparked the interest. Uh, and I certainly was very shocked when I discovered how high the global burden of disease was. It's it's ranked the most common cause of acquired paediatric heart disease worldwide um, just before Kawasaki. And it's estimated that 15.6 million people are affected um, with about 233,000 deaths annually. These are all quite rough estimates because of the poor um, the, the poor literature surrounding the topic, particularly in, in low resource settings where it's very difficult to establish the true burden of disease. Um, and estimates for sub-Saharan Africa uh, from 2012 showed a prevalence of about 57 uh, in uh, per thousand in your sc- school age children, so the five to fourteen year olds, um, but more recent studies have suggested that it's certainly significantly higher than that. Um, and echo surveillance studies in Mozambique have shown that it's actually more likely to be thirty thirty per thousand um, the prevalence in school children, um, and Ugandan studies as well showing about 14.8 per thousand. So I think it probably is certainly a lot higher than we previously anticipated. I, I assume the discrepancy is because the, the first estimate is, 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 is that of children who present with symptoms, who, um, and the other one is, is those who have had, had some damage but don't yet know about it. I think probably, Nick, so this is Suzanne coming in here, I think it's more likely that the it depends on the age at which they're screening the children. Okay. So the older the age group, the more likely you are to pick up a valvular heart disease. So sure. if you compare many of the papers that are out there in the literature looking at burden of disease studies, they're using different age ranges. Some are screening as young as nine and then going up to 14. Some are starting a bit older, up to 18 years of age. And the older they are, the more you're going to pick up. 
But I think the difference between the 5.7 per thousand and then the 30.4 is actually that the 5.7 is purely an estimate based on other low resource settings. So there was no, when that initial global of burden disease, global burden of disease study was carried out, there was no estimate, there was no data at all for the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. And it's only more recently that they have that. And in terms of group A streptococcal disease... So in terms of um, group A strep and the burden of disease there, uh, the WHO reported 18.1 million people were living with a serious group A strep disease. So that's things like acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease, post-tropical glomerulonephritis as well. And they estimate that that attributes to about 5 million deaths per year in 2005 alone. Yeah. But it's worth saying that there's probably a paucity of data out there. I mean, even at the... MRC, where I'm based in the Gambia, where we have excellent microbiology facilities, people rarely collect throat swabs. So, sure. uh, you know, we have very little data out there. There is a couple of papers that have come out recently, one from Mali and another from South Africa, looking at prevalence of different serotypes. But these are kind of, these studies are few and far between in low resource countries. Yeah. Why are children in low and middle income countries so much more susceptible? So I think in in my head, I think of it in terms of where we've got to different stages of um, prevention in developing countries. Uh, And obviously in the developing countries, we've managed to sort of get past our primordial prevention. So improve living conditions, um, overcrowding, improved hygiene um, and in particular we know that uh, how many people sleep in one room correlates quite highly to the increased transmission rate of group A strep infections. Um, So I think that's one enormous reason why more children get it in um, low resource settings Um, and then in terms of what happens once they have got the initial infection and obviously so when that leads on to them getting acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease, is that they're not presenting to their primary health care centres for um, antibiotic cover. Um, they're probably not aware of the importance of presenting with, be it throat infections or skin infections. And certainly if they were to present, they probably wouldn't be receiving an appropriate antibiotic coverage for that group A strep infection. Um, so I think it's multifactorial, but basically due to poor public health infrastructure. Can I just add, one of the other things that's always surprised me working in sub-Saharan Africa is that very few children come to the clinic complaining of sore throat, and yet it must occur. It's just not something that they generally go to the primary health care or secondary health care centre complaining of. And whether this is because parents use traditional treatments at home or go and see the traditional healer i mean certainly you see children coming in 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 the gambia with sort of strings around their neck Mm. which is often a traditional form of healing for a sore throat but unlike in our experience in you know western europe and presumably north american practice where uh, pharyngitis is a very common problem in children you just don't get them complaining of it in sub-saharan africa or not as frequently as is my experience working in the UK. I suppose it's also just worth adding that similarly we see a lot of post-strep glomerulonephritis and all the evidence for that suggests that it's related to um, 
group A strep skin infection, possibly associated with scabies and mm. scratching, introducing mm. the infection into the bloodstream. And again, uh, parents rarely seek medical treatment and antibiotics for treatment of this. And in the mm. rainy season, you see many children with sort of pussy lesions all over their their lower legs, and yet they parents rarely consider this to be a problem. I think they see it as a just a normal skin complaint that goes away of its own accord. They don't see it as potentially a precursor to a more serious disease. Yeah, yes. One of the things I liked most about the paper was the uh, with the, the vignettes. Um, could you choose one of them just to illustrate to to listeners? what how these children present to um to a clinic and what um, and what can be done and also just touch on the diagnostic criteria and why they had to be adapted slightly for lmic settings okay so i'm going to use a a vignette of a 12 year old gambian girl who was one of the first patients i saw when i went to work uh in the gambia and she Basically, in her history was she'd initially presented to a local health centre complaining of lethargy, arthralgia and an intermittent low-grade fever, all very common complaints. And she was diagnosed with clinical malaria, treated accordingly, and, and that sure. was it. And this is a, a very common phenomenon, particularly in, in countries where malaria has been, is endemic, has been very prevalent, but where malaria is now declining in in. Uh, prevalence, it's still the commonest diagnosis made by uh, most healthcare personnel. Uh. Anyway, four months later, she came back to the clinic with very similar symptoms. And on examination, she looked really unwell, uh, uh. had a soft systolic murmur in the mitral area. And we did some baseline blood tests, including uh, an ESR, which was raised at 130 millimeters. We did a chest x-ray on her, which showed um, a grossly dilated heart and an because of her symptoms, we suspected that she might have rheumatic heart disease or acute rheumatic fever. We did an ECG, which showed a prolonged PR interval, and echo completed by a colleague showed a moderately dilated left ventricle and left atrium with some mitral regurgitation, the, the commonest um, valve affected with uh, rheumatic heart disease. And in this case, she got a throat swab, which is surprising because that's rarely done, and we grew a group A strep. So we diagnosed acute rheumatic fever and admitted her for the standard treatment. So in her case, she had a number of criteria that sort of met uh, the definition for acute rheumatic fever. She had fever. Uh, she had a murmur, so carditis. She had a raised ESR. And in this case, we actually had evidence of, of a group A strep infection. And that's unusual in a in my experience in a low resource setting. So our standard management was to give her bed rest. Um, um, uh, she didn't particularly have arthralgia, but a lot of the patients that present do, and then they really don't want to move around very much. She was given intramuscular benzathine penicillin and aspirin to introduce to reduce the inflammation. And we use 50 milligrams per kilo per day in five divided mm -hmm. doses. Because she had some heart failing, we started her on an ACE inhibitor and 
we're lucky in that we have access to long-acting ACE inhibitors, so we use lisinopril, but the sort of common ACE inhibitor available at Ministry of Health level would be captopril, and mm. disadvantage of that is having to give it two to three times a, day, three and, times a day, and then all the problems associated with adherence. And she was started on IV frusamide twice daily, and she got better very quickly, and we discharged her seven days later on drugs, uh, um, including penicillin, frusamide, and ACE inhibitor in three months supply of aspirin. And we arranged to see her in OPD. And what we generally would do was uh, monitor the response to treatment by measuring the ESR. And as is the case with many patients, she didn't come back to her follow-up appointment. And the most common reason for this is often that they just don't have the money for the bus fare or the taxi fare mm. in this case. But they then do present when they have worsening heart failure, which she did about two months later. And she had worsening exercise tolerance since she ran out of her medicines. And this is something that uh, I try and emphasize in the clinic setting, actually, just knowing, you know, from one clinic assessment to the next, how far a child can walk and, you know, mm. can they walk from the clinic entrance to the to my clinic room, which is probably mm. about 50 meters, or can they walk from the main road to the clinic room which is probably 200 meters or yeah. to the and it's just a really good way and, and everyone asks the same well a lot of people will ask the same questions so you can get a good feel for how poor their exercise tolerance mm. was and this young woman could I think barely walk from the gateway to the clinic room um, so and when we examined her she had a raised JVP she'd got pedal edema, she'd got a big liver, and she'd got bilateral crackles on oh. listening to the bases of her chest. And when we repeated her echo, <clears throat> she'd got worsening mitral regurgitation. So by this stage, we really had to acknowledge that she'd probably got rheumatic heart disease now with some congestive cardiac failure. So, and this is worth saying, the majority of patients that that we diagnose in this setting in the Gambia, and certainly it was my experience working in Malawi and also in South Africa where I used to work, is that they usually present with established rheumatic heart disease. It's unusual yep. to diagnose acute rheumatic fever, yeah. either because they don't present to um, to secondary or tertiary care, or when they do, people don't recognise the symptoms. So we usually see them when they're in severe heart failure. And she came in and we treated her with frusamide, uh, ACE inhibitor again, benzene, penicillin, as before, and aspirin. And she rapidly got better. We sent her home um, and emphasized the importance of regular outpatient follow-up. And she continues to come to the clinic. So I guess her case illustrates just the devastating effect of acute rheumatic fever and then rheumatic heart disease, but also the challenges of diagnosing both acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease in a low resource setting. So the original sort of Jones criteria that were published by the American Heart Association in 1992 are really designed for a high resource environment where you not only um, will have access to good microbiology but you also have serology so you can do ASO teeters probably look at other inflammatory markers so mm. I'm lucky in that I work at the Medical Research Council labs in the Gambia and we have excellent laboratory facilities so yeah. we can measure ESR we don't have ASO teeter unfortunately but we do have echo we do have access to ECG machine so 
and we're not dissimilar to many other cases and perhaps the country that's done the most work on looking at uh, better ways of diagnosing acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease uh, the Australians, where they see very high rates of rheumatic heart disease. Um, so Australians and New Zealanders, actually. Mm. And in particular, in their indigenous populations, yeah. Aboriginals um, and Maori populations in Australia and New Zealand, respectively, and also in Torres Straits Islanders. Um, mm. So recognising the fact that it was very hard to diagnose both these conditions, they slightly modified the WHO criteria and in particular, they emphasized, um, I think, more subtle signs. So, for example, subclinical carditis, which in the original, which is sort of um, probably borderline mitral valve disease, yeah. was recognized as being a major criteria for diagnosing acute rheumatic fever. Um, and the other thing that they highlighted was the presence of polyarthralgia, which again is considered a minor criteria in the original uh, Jones criteria and also WHO, but the Australians brought this out as a major criteria. So sure. certainly in our setting, a history of fever, flitting arthralgia, carditis, a raised ESR, plus minus a prolonged PR interval, and if you're lucky, a raised ESR would be enough for us to diagnose yeah. acute rheumatic acute rheumatic fever and certainly if they've got established valvular heart disease then rheumatic heart disease yes. with often an acute presentation on top of that because these sure. kids often it's worth emphasizing they'll get recurrent episodes of yes. acute rheumatic fever on damaged valves sure so what you've described is um is, is a medical management and which i think is fair to say is largely palliative yeah. um because of the valve damage has occurred and is 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 not medically reversible. What well, what are the options for surgery? Say both both in Gambia and and in other in other settings. I know there's a huge variety. In fact, I've there's a paper which I I've commissioned, which is due out very soon on on surgical services in NMICs. Um, but what 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 can you do in the Gambia, and what can sub-Saharan Africa other sub-Saharan African countries do for the children? Uh, sadly, I think fairly limited at the moment. Um, in particular, as you highlighted earlier, the major issue is the late detection of the rheumatic heart disease that we see in sub-Saharan Africa. So because they have such severe valvular damage by the time they even present to us in clinic, by that stage, you really are left with, as you say, the medical management is very much palliative. And we know that patients with severe rheumatic heart disease and severe valvular damage will die without cardi cardiac surgery. Um, however, for most people, this, this is just unrealistic and surgical intervention is certainly very limited. Africa alone has only 1% of the world's cardiothoracic surgeons. So it, it, the reality... 1%. 1%. So the reality of them having surgery in their home countries it is pretty much nil um, and uh, I think correct me if I'm wrong but what West Africa has no cardiac centers there might be one in is there one in Ghana so Senegal does some cardiothoracic surgery and that's in with the support of a, a, a French charity called Chambre de l'Espoir possibly there's none in Ghana there's none in Nigeria uh, South Africa is the major center yes and then in East Africa Kenya 
and with the help of Chain of Hope, Ethiopia also, and Sudan are doing some work. And North Africa, of course, Egypt. Um, but but even then, these children still have to get there. And um, sometimes getting over to East Africa is actually more complicated than getting over to Europe for surgery. And in terms of the funding, who's going to fund this? And there's certainly limited charitable funding for it. Um, in terms of criteria, who actually needs surgical intervention, sadly, it's the majority of our patients because they present so late. So the WHO criteria is purely symptomatic patients, those with re- valvular heart rheumatic heart disease and those in New York Heart Association uh, criteria for heart failure class 2 so that's basically the majority of our patients Um, but what's so important to consider is is surgery really appropriate for these patients to consider their other comorbidity the long term compliance and in particular anticoagulation if they are to go on and have a valve replacement as opposed to repair and how on earth they're going to have access to anticoagulation in country how that's going to be monitored and how they're going to comply with that and the implications of that if they're young ladies the implications of that in pregnancy as well Um, and then in terms of what's their follow-up going to be post-operatively not just the anticoagulations but the other medications that they're going to require what is their access to that and if they are having valve replacements, then are they going to outgrow those mechanical replacements and are they going to require future replacements in 15, 20 years' time? And if so, who's going to fund that? Because a charity that might have been around might not still be around for them. And I think what's very worrying is when we look at the long-term mortality data from valvular repair and replacement in the developing setting and f- mitral valve replacement the 12-year survival rate is only 38 percent which is hideous compared to mitral valve repair which is actually 90 percent so we have a really good chance if we detect these children early and we detect their valvular disease earlier with good echo surveillance programs then we have an incredibly good chance of giving them a really good quality of life and long-term outcome whereas if it's left too late then the consequences are, are pretty tragic so that's, that's at the very late correction stage. What about a vaccine for group A strep? Has there been any progress on that recently? Well, this is, this is the elusive vaccine. So there have been a number of, well, work on producing a potential group A strep vaccine has been ongoing for decades, actually. And there are now a number of group A strep antigens that have been identified as potential vaccine components. Mm. And the lead candidates are the type-specific peptides um, found on the amino terminal of the surface of the M proteins. And these regions of M proteins have been shown to evoke antibodies with the greatest bactericidal or protective activity and are least likely to cross-react with human tissues. However, there's only one potential vaccine candidate ready for trial, and this has been produced by an American group led by Jim Dell, who's had a lot of publications recently on uh, vaccine serotype prevalence uh, in America, North Europe, and in Sub-Saharan Africa. And he's now got a 30-valent vaccine containing M-protein peptides from gas serotypes that are prevalent in North America and Europe. Mm. However, there's a there's a real paucity of data on prevalent M serotypes circulating in sub-Saharan Africa and other countries where rheumatic heart disease is is causing a huge amount of disease. 
However, there have been some recent studies um, from Cape Town in South Africa and, and in Mali, which have shown widely differing serotype prevalence. Certainly in Mali, they've got over 60 circulating gas serotypes, whereas I think the work done recently published from Cape Town was more like 27, about less than 30, certainly. However, what they have shown is that the vaccines seem to elicit bactericidal antibodies against a significant number of non-vaccine serotypes, okay. indicating the potential efficacy of the 30-valent vaccine, uh, extending well beyond the serotypes represented by the subunit M-peptide. However, no trials have commenced yet, and what we really need is a, a trial in the low-resource setting, such as the Gambia. And I guess yeah. this gives me an opportunity to sort of plug the the Gambia is a just as an excellent vaccine trial site. I mean, it has a yeah. fantastic track record for doing major vaccine studies. And one of its advantages are that it's a small country. It's got a number of demographic surveillance sites, which means that the structure of the population is really well known. There's very good relationships between the population and the MRC because they've had many uh, trials ongoing in the communities and everyone's seen the benefit of this. So we're really keen to do something like this in the Gambia but the problem is before you can do that we have no idea of the burden of rheumatic heart disease in the Gambia. I mean no surveillance has been carried out. Yeah. It's difficult to do and as we've discovered it's very hard to get funded. We put in two proposals, one to a GSK um, call recently yeah. um, for work in sub-Saharan Africa. They didn't go for it. Another one to the Thrash of Thund. They haven't gone for it. Yeah. And the problem with doing echo surveillance studies is that you need skilled echocardiographers. You need yeah. a huge number of children. We've estimated that to get a good burden of disease survey in the Gambia, we need over 5,000 children. Yeah. Um, and another approach, I suppose, is to look at the incidence of gas-related skin disease and pharyngitis mm. and then mm. you could monitor the change post-vaccination. Mm. We have uh, some colleagues in France led by a young cardiologist Mariana, Mariana Mirabel who's hoping to come out and do some surveillance studies with us in the Gambia and she's interested in looking at comparing sort of gold standard echocardiography with a very simple handheld echo machine that could be used by non-medically trained personnel. So much simple, much simpler five-minute scan, just specifically looking yeah. at the mitral valve and the aortic valve. And this might be something that if it's shown to be applicable in in, uh, in many low and middle-income countries, could enable us to collect surveillance data easily and relatively cheaply. So that's where we're at at present. Yeah, so there's there's some there are a few things on the horizon, but nothing on the immediate one. Absolutely. So if you know of any good sources of funding, let us know. <laughs> I'll keep my ears open. It's been great talking to you both. Thank you so much for joining me. I I I love the paper, and I'm, I'm, I'm I know this probably listened to extensively. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And um, yeah, thank you very much, Nick. It's been a privilege and a pleasure.